Lesson 7, Matthew 24 and 25, for the dates May 12 to 18, ready for teaching on May 19. Sabbath afternoon, May 12. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're opening the New Testament today, and we're going to listen to what Jesus has to say about what happens at the end of time, but also about how we can be prepared. And as we do so, we pray for your Holy Spirit to guide us, to enlighten our minds, and to convince us of the truth that we need to know, but also to guide us to the direction that we need to follow. Bless us now, we pray in Jesus' dear name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Matthew twenty four twenty four. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Let's read that again, Matthew twenty four twenty four. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. In Matthew chapter 24 and 25, Jesus reveals important truths about end times and about how to be prepared. In a sense, these chapters were Christ's teaching on last day events. At the same time, he looks to the more immediate future and sees the impending destruction of Jerusalem, a tragedy of catastrophic proportions for his people. But in Christ's words to his disciples, he speaks also to his followers in the generations to come, including and especially the last one, the one that will be alive when he returns. Jesus doesn't paint a pretty picture either. Wars, rumours of wars, pestilence, false Christs and persecution, this will be the lot of the world and the lot of his church. Amazingly enough, looking back through time, we can see just how accurate his predictions were. Therefore, we can trust him for the predictions not yet fulfilled in our lifetime. But Jesus didn't just warn about what was coming. In Matthew 25, he also told parables that, if heeded, will prepare his people for when he, the Son of Man, returns. Yes, hard times will come, but he will prepare a people to meet him when he does come back. Sunday, May 13, a powerful confirmation of prophecy. In the final days before the cross, the disciples spoke with Jesus on the Mount of Olives. Imagine them hearing Jesus say that the temple will be destroyed. Who knows exactly what went on in their minds, but the questions that the disciples asked afterwards indicate that they linked the destruction of the temple with the end of the world, as it says in Matthew 24, verse 3. Question. Read Matthew 24, verse 1 through to 25. What overall message did Jesus give to his followers about the last days? Matthew 24, verses 1 through to 25. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. 
Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumours of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house, and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, and pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Matthew 24, verses 1 to 25, makes it clear that, among other things, Christ is concerned with deceptions that will confuse his people through the ages and into the end time. Among those deceptions will be false prophets and false Christs. Some will come claiming to represent Christ, false prophets, and some will come claiming to be Christ. And the terrible thing is, people will believe them too. We have seen a sad but powerful confirmation of the Word of God. All through history, and even in our day, deceivers have indeed come, saying, I am the Christ. What a remarkable prophecy. Living in the time that we do, we can survey the long centuries of history and see, in ways those who lived in Christ's time couldn't, just how accurate that prediction was. We shouldn't be surprised either if deceptions like these only increase as we near the final crisis.
Also, in the context of affirmation of faith, look at how Jesus Monday, depicted the May state 14, of the world. During, at various times in Earth's history since Christ, people placed their hope in things they believed and Revelation 13, or at least greatly reduced to sufferings and woes parallels exist between be what political Jesus movements in Matthew, or technology and what he inspired John to reason about in at one time or another. Matthew people have placed great hope then that they these will deliver you up to tribulation and utopia. And you will be hated by all nations, as the painful witness of history has shown again and again. These hopes always saw another beast coming up out of the earth. The world today is just like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. Christ's words, spoken almost two thousand years ago, show just how misguided those hopes really to worship the first beast, whose deadly word was And so to finish the day. He Read Matthew 24, so that he even makes fire what can we take away from, from this earth in the that should help of us to affirm us and he deceives those who dwell faith. on the earth by those signs See, which he I has told you to do in beforehand. the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Christ's concern for his people in the end time includes a global deception that causes nations to oppose the true faith and to impose a false worship on the world. Those who stand firm will face hatred, tribulation, and even death. Question. Read Matthew 24, verse 13. What is the key to being saved, to being faithful, even amid worldwide opposition? Matthew 24, and verse 13. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. From the Great Controversy, page 593, we read, None but those who have fortified the mind with the truths of the Bible will stand through the last great conflict. End of quote. This statement means that all who fortify their minds with biblical truths will not be swept away in any of the end-time deceptions. They have to be grounded in what truth is for this time. Otherwise, the deceptions will overwhelm them. Question. Read Matthew 7, verses 24 to 27. What else is crucial for staying faithful to God? Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. As important as it is to be grounded intellectually in the word of God, according to Jesus, that is still not enough to be able to stand amid the trials that we will face. We have to do what we have learned, that is, we have to obey the truth as it is in Jesus. In the parable above, both builders heard the sayings of Jesus. 
The difference between them, between enduring and not enduring, was obeying what Jesus had taught. And so to finish the day, why does the one who obeys stand and the one who doesn't obey fall? What difference does obedience have in keeping a person steady in the faith? Tuesday, May 15, The Abomination of Desolation In his great discourse on the end time, Christ points to the abomination of desolation in Matthew 24, verse 15, an image from the book of Daniel. As we read in Daniel 9.27, Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. And Daniel 11 and verse 31. And forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices, and place there the abomination of desolation. And Daniel 12 verse 11. And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away, and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. God declared something an abomination when it was a serious violation of his law, such as idolatry in Deuteronomy 27.15 or immoral sexual practices in Leviticus 18.22. Hence, this abomination of desolation involved some sort of religious apostasy. Question. Read Matthew 24 verse 15 and Luke 21 verse 20. How do these texts help us to understand better what Jesus was talking about in regard to the abomination of desolation? Matthew 24, verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. And Luke 21, verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. These two texts make it clear that Jesus' prediction includes, in a more immediate sense, the terrible destruction that would come upon Jerusalem in AD 70, when pagan Rome would destroy not only the city, but the sacred temple as well. However, there is a second fulfilment of this prophecy in which the more immediate events, such as the destruction of Jerusalem, stood as a type of future end-time events. The Great Controversy, page 22. Christ saw in Jerusalem a symbol of the world, hardened in unbelief and rebellion, and hastening on to meet the retributive judgments of God. End of quote. In Daniel chapter 12 and 11 and Daniel 11.31, the abomination of desolation appears in connection with the latter phase of Rome, the papal phase, in which an alternative system of mediation and salvation has been set up, one which seeks to usurp what Christ had done for us, and indeed continues to do for us now in the heavenly sanctuary. 
Daniel 8, particularly verses 9 to 12, helps to place these events in their historical context with a two-phased Roman power. The first phase, seen in the little horn's rapid horizontal expansion, Daniel 8-9, shows the vast empire of pagan Rome. In the second phase, in verses 10-12 to of chapter 8 in Daniel, the little horn grows vertically, casting down some of the stars, persecuting God's people, and magnifying itself to the prince of the host, as it says in verse 11, Jesus. This represents the papal phase, which rose out of the collapse of the pagan Roman Empire, but still remains Rome. That's why one symbol, the little horn, represents both phases of the same power. The judgment in Daniel 7, 9 and 10, the cleansing of the sanctuary in Daniel 8, 14, and the signs in the heavens of Matthew 24, 29, all signal God's intervention for his people in the last days. Wednesday, May 16, The Ten Virgins After his discourse in Matthew 24 about the signs of his coming, in Matthew 25, Jesus talks about how to be prepared for it. Question, read Matthew 25, verses 1 to 13, the parable of the ten virgins. What is Jesus saying here that should help us to understand how we can be prepared for his return? Matthew 25, beginning at verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you. But go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Jesus starts this phase of his discourse by talking about ten virgins. The fact that they are called virgins suggests they represent those who profess to be Christians. They are not on Satan's side of the controversy. Instead, they are likened to the kingdom of heaven in verse 1. But in the end time, they all sleep, verse 5, even though Christ already has warned about keeping watch in Matthew 24:42, or staying awake so they will be ready when he returns. Matthew 24:42 reads, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. 
all ten virgins have lamps and all go out to meet the bridegroom, which means that they are all looking forward to his coming. There is a delay, and all of these believers in his coming fall asleep. Suddenly, in the dead of night, they all are awakened. The bridegroom is coming. And we read that in verses 1 to 6. The foolish virgins are startled, unprepared. Why? One version says, our lamps are gone out, in verse 8. Other versions, true to the Greek original, say the lamps are going out. There is still a flickering flame. The women still have a little oil, but not enough to be prepared to meet Christ. What then is the problem? These virgins represent Christians who are waiting for Christ to return, but who have a superficial experience with him. They have some oil, some working of the Spirit in their lives, but it is merely flickering. They are satisfied with little when they needed much. And from Christ Object Lessons, page 411, we read, The Spirit works upon man's heart, according to his desire and consent, implanting in him a new nature. But the class represented by the foolish virgins have been content with a superficial work. They do not know God. They have not studied his character. They have not held communion with him. Therefore, they do not know how to trust, how to look and live. Their service to God degenerates into a form. And so to finish the day. What are ways we can look at ourselves and make sure we aren't making the same mistakes as these people did? If we see ourselves in this role, how can we change? Thursday, May 17. Using your talents. Question. Read Matthew 25, verses 13 to 20. What role does using our gifts have in preparing us for the return of Christ? Matthew 25, beginning at verse 13. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man travelling to a far country, who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability, and immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them, and made another five talents. And likewise he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also, who had received two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, 
Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown, and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid, and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. Therefore take the talent from him, and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given." and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Although Jesus told a different parable here than the one just before, both talk about being ready for the return of Christ. Both deal with those who were ready and those who weren't and both show the fate of those who, through their own spiritual neglect, faced eternal loss. Just as the oil represents the Holy Spirit for the ten virgins, so the bag, or bags of gold, uh, as it's described in Matthew 25.15 in the NIV, represent talents, which is the Greek word talenta in the original language. The Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary, Volume 5, page 510, says the talents represent special gifts of the Spirit together with all natural endowments. End of quote. All the servants in the parable had received goods from their master. Notice, too, that they were the master's goods, it said in verse 14, which were entrusted to them, each according to his ability, verse 15. The gifts given to the servants were given in trust, in a real sense, these servants were stewards of what they didn't own, but were responsible for. That's why when the master came back, he settled accounts with them, it said in verse 19. Spiritual gifts come from the Holy Spirit, as we read in 1 Corinthians 12, 1-11. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles, carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues." But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he 
wills. And later in the chapter, in verses 28 to 31 in 1 Corinthians 12, And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles, do all have gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. And Ephesians 4.11 says this, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. There is good news, therefore, for those who think they have the least gift. Gifts are never received without the giver. So these people receive their gifts by receiving the greatest gift, the Holy Spirit. The gifts are already ours in Christ, but our actual possession depends upon our reception of the Holy Spirit and surrender to Him. Here is where the unprofitable servant made his mistake. He had been given a gift, but did nothing with it. He left his gift unimproved. He didn't make an effort to take what he had been graciously given and do something with it. As a result, Jesus called him wicked and lazy in verse 26 of Matthew 25. A powerful condemnation. So to finish the day, Jesus told this parable in the context of the last days and his return. What does it teach us then about how the use of our talents is crucial to being prepared for the last days? Friday, May 18. The man who received the one talent went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. We read in Christ Object Lessons, page 355 and 356. It continues, It was the one with the smallest gift who left his talent unimproved. In this is given a warning to all who feel that the smallness of their endowments excuses them from service for Christ. If they could do some great thing, how gladly would they undertake it? But because they can serve only in little things, they think themselves justified in doing nothing. In this, they err. The Lord, in his distribution of gifts, is testing character. The man who neglected to improve his talent proved himself an unfaithful servant. Had he received five talents, he would have buried them as he buried the one. His misuse of the one talent shows that he despised the gifts of heaven. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much, it says in Luke 16.10. The importance of the little things is often underrated because they are small, but they supply much of the actual discipline of life. There are really no non-essentials in the Christian's life. Our character building will be full of peril while we underrate the importance of the little things. End of quote. And that brings us to our four discussion questions for today. One, what have been some ideologies and ideals that people have believed would bring about a utopia on earth? What were those ideas and why, without exception, have they all failed? 
to what is it about obedience to what God tells us to do that strengthens our faith? That is, why is faith, without the corresponding works, dead, as it says in James 2.26, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Considering the kind of trials awaiting those who keep the commandments of God, as it said in Revelation 14.12, why is it so important for us to be preparing now for what will come when we least expect it? Revelation 14.12 read, Here is the patience of the saints, here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And question three, think more about the ten virgins. Why should their story be a warning to us that, on the surface, and in so many different ways, they all looked and acted alike? How can we make sure we are not as self-deceived as the foolish ones were? And question four, what does it mean that, if possible, even the elect could be deceived? What is your understanding of the elect? Well, Matthew twenty four thirty one reads, And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. And Romans eight thirty three reads, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And Colossians three twelve. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. What does this tell us about how great the deceptions will be? Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled Holy Spirit Moment and it's by Christopher Holland. I stopped going to the Roman Catholic Church when I was 16. The primary reason was that my parents, who taught marriage enrichment classes at the church, were going through a divorce. The priest, who had eaten at our house many times, never visited when my parents parted ways. I decided that if this was what God and his church were all about, then this wasn't for me. Four years passed. I moved from Chicago area to northern Indiana, where I worked the late shift at a gas station. It was there that I met my future wife, Debbie, who worked up the street at a nursing home. Debbie and I talked whenever she bought gas. She understood my interest in spiritual matters. My questions reawakened her own interest in her Seventh-day Adventist upbringing. One night, we visited the Pioneer Memorial Church at nearby Andrews University. We had heard that something interesting was happening, and we walked in on Net95 satellite evangelistic series led by Mark Finlay. After the meetings ended, I began to study the Bible. I nearly joined another Protestant church, but Debbie stopped me with a Bible study on the secret rapture. Debbie asked me whether I sincerely believed that Christians would be quietly whisked away to heaven. When I struggled, she gave me a powerful Bible study about how every eye will see Jesus at his second coming. It was a Holy Spirit moment. I was baptized in September 1995, and Debbie was rebaptized a month later. We were married the next spring. 
I began to sense a real burden to share the gospel. But how? The answer came when Andrews University hired me to run the gazebo restaurant on campus. A perk of the job was a free class every semester. I signed up for a religion class and became convicted that God was calling me to be a minister. My first evangelistic series took place in the Chicago area where I had grown up. It was like the Lord gave me the opportunity to make good. Several years later, Mark Finley, the evangelist whose Net 95 meetings introduced me to the Adventist message, teamed up with me to lead evangelistic meetings at 34 sites in the Chicago area. More than 500 people were baptised. Today, I am broadcasting across Canada as director and speaker for It Is Written Canada. If you had told me my future when I was 17, I would have blown the froth off my beer and laughed. God leads in an amazing way. Your reader for this week's Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide has been Dr. Percy Harold. It has been produced in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind, distributed under the auspices of the Sabbath School Department by HopeChannel.com.